listening to a podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello and welcome to The Fear of God, episode five. Nathan, we made it. We did. We're, we're at the big five. <laughs> Well, hey, I didn't know when I started this out if I would make it past two. So the fact that yes. the fact that we've approached five, um, that was not a dismissive laugh. That was, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're here. <laughs> we're here. And if you don't know uh, who we are, my name is Reed Lackey, uh, and I am Nathan Rouse, and we are here to discuss Christianity and the horror genre. And uh, we've been doing so for a few episodes now. Last week we talked about The Conjuring Two which uh, was a movie we both uh, had a couple of tweaks to in our enjoyment, but we, we both seemed to really enjoy a great deal. Um, but before we get into uh, this week, just Nathan, how you doing? How you been? I'm, I'm doing well, man. You know, I'm making it through all of these, some rather, some just semi-scary movies, relatively <laughs> unscathed. Um, so yeah, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm well, doing that's quite good. Well. That's good. And today's movie, which we'll talk about in a little bit, I'm sure probably didn't give you any specific nightmares, as it were. I don't know. I have fears of barrels of acid. Ugh. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah, that was definitely that was definitely unnerving. I uh it's funny because as you know, as we talked about, I've I've watched a great many movies um, you know, that we're not necessarily talking about. I've seen quite a few horror films the last couple of weeks. And I actually it was interesting because I saw a couple of movies that feature stars from the film we're talking about this week and i didn't i didn't realize it before i went into it one of them i don't know if you could classify it as a horror film but it was as of this recording it was streaming on netflix so i'm sure it's probably available on demand somewhere have you heard of a movie called faults faults like true or false no faults like uh Faults like you're you're at fault and blame. Oh, fault. No, uh, uh, no, I have not heard of fault. Well, it was funny because it just sort of came up in my feed or in like one of my recommendations. It, I guess it was a film from 2014. It's the director's only feature. It's uh, directed by a guy named Riley Stearns, who I guess, at least at the time, was married to Mary Elizabeth Winstead. And mm-hmm. it, it's a really... Really interesting movie. It's uh, it, it basically I don't want to say too much about it other than that it deals with the idea of mind control and cults. It is not interesting. Um, yeah, it's not specifically like a a horror. I would definitely classify it as a as a kind of a dramatic thriller, um, mm-hmm. kind of like what we're talking about today. But it's not straightforward horror. But it is thought provoking with some incredible performances. I mean, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is wonderful, but it, its main star is an actor who I've seen in things. He's kind of the guy who was in that thing, but his name is Leland Orser, and he is excellent. He does such an amazing job. Uh, it's a very thought-provoking movie. I would highly recommend it. It's just called Faults, F-A-U-L-T-S. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I would highly recommend you see that. Have you seen Have you seen anything else recently that I haven't begged you to see? Um, I did see Finding Dory. 
Oh, that was such a good movie. You didn't like it that much, though. From Whoa. We're going to drag that out into the open, huh? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I, you know, we can talk about other things, too. But Finding Dory, I was ultimately, uh, it's not too strong to say the word disappointment came to mind for me, which makes me sad because I am, as, as you are, too, a, a devout Pixar fan. And so... I thought it was okay. Um, you yeah. know, there's a whole other conversation that could be had about Pixar's sequels and prequels and their their value um, outside of the Toy Story line, at least. So, yeah, I did see that. Um, honestly, haven't seen that many movies. Um, my wife and I just watched the first season of Mr. Robot, so that was oh interesting. You know, it was one of those, it, it had a ton of positive sort of buzz about it. Um, <laughs> I'm going to sound like such a naysayer here, but, like, I think the positive buzz kind of hurt it for me over the long Hall uh, had a lot of interesting things going on, a lot of you know, performances that kept me interested and, and compelling overall, but ultimately left a lot. I was very kind of put off, honestly, by the season finale. Yeah. You know, such that I might, you know, I might give it a chance when it comes back, but definitely didn't do kind of what I thought it might. Yeah, I, I saw the first season of Mr. Robot 2, and I felt exactly how you did. I felt it was incredibly ambitious, and I know some of my friends just adored it, not even just critical circles i have you know I, I talked with a few people about it who were really struck by it but it, it didn't really i didn't really speak its language there were definitely a couple of reveals through the course of the last few episodes that i found interesting sure. and compelling but but even those let's let's be honest you know we're not going to spoiler out all of mr robot but even some of the, well at least one of a couple major ones i I felt like was kind of forecast or not forecast. I mean, I, I don't know. It wasn't a surprise. It was a twist for the show, but to me, it, it wasn't much of a surprise. But in in light of those two sort of you know kind of dings between Dory and and Mr. Robot, uh, not a movie, but I did finish End of Watch by old Uncle Stephen King. Oh, I haven't read that yet. I found a lot to like about it. Um, a uh, little bit predictable. It was the the third of a trilogy uh, with this new character he had created, Bill Hodges, and and all three of the entries are very strong, um, despite a little bit of predictability. As you know, you know Stephen King is always eminently readable, um, and still took a lot of pleasure out of the reading of it. So yeah, I'm very excited to get to that. I have only as of this as of this recording, I've only read Mister Mercedes, and I'm about halfway through Finders Keepers. Yeah, uh, which I was I'm really enjoying. I found a lot. I found a lot to like in both of those. That was a very good book. Yeah. Um, I really wish he would write more sort of straightforward crime fiction. And I haven't read the, you know, the last half of the second book or any of the third, so I don't know if it remains straightforward crime fiction. But I know Mr. Mercedes as a straightforward sort of crime thriller was just absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I would agree with that. Well, one, uh, one sort of final thing that I wanted to mention uh, by way of recommendation sort of back in the in the horror niche is uh, I saw a movie that I think not only was streaming on Netflix, but I think was released by Netflix. Netflix did not produce it, but I think they bought it for distribution rights. It was a film that hit without a lot of publicity. And uh, actually how I heard about it, speaking of Stephen King, was because on Twitter he praised it. And I was like, oh, okay, let me, let me see what this is. I mean, he's he's praised a lot of films that I didn't think were wonderful, but... <laughs> Many of his own. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. He, say, he said, oh, this is fantastic. And I watched it and he's like, oh, your, your, your book was better, but okay. But the uh, but it's a film by a director that I have I have really liked. He's a relatively new director named Mike Flanagan. And he actually, he directed a film called Absentia, which I saw accidentally like late one night on like the Chiller channel or something. One of those, you know, really 
low-end types of, of venues for horror stories, but I really liked Absentia. And then he directed the much more popular, and I, again, another movie I liked called Oculus. But then this hush is a really great premise. The idea behind this is just that there's this woman who is deaf, and she's a writer, and she, for, for personal reasons, kind of secludes herself in the woods so that she can concentrate on writing and kind of run away from a few personal issues. But while she's out there, she's suddenly haunted and stalked by an outright malicious, vicious killer. Um, but because she's deaf, the movie takes great advantage of lots of very suspenseful scenes. Oh, that's not cool. That actually reminds me of, um, is it Wait Until Dark? Is that the name? Yeah. Of and in fact, okay. Audrey Hepburn? Yeah, Audrey Hepburn. And in fact, that was the quote that Stephen King made. He said, this is the best film of its type since Wait Until Dark. And I was like, and I love Wait Until Dark. I've never had the opportunity to see that stage play, but I think that movie is excellent with Audrey Hepburn and a very young Alan Arkin. And so I saw it, and Wait Until Dark is a better film, but there's a lot to like about Hush, and, and I would strongly Well, and let's, let's, let's be honest here. If Stephen King says um, this is the best movie of its kind since Wait Until Dark, I think the genre for a sensory-deprived female protagonist being stalked, <laughs> it's, probably a pretty, it's probably a pretty small field of category i'm just taking a guess there there might be there might, there might be dozens of them well, um regardless well i would almost uh i would almost classify the film that we're going to talk about today in that category i don't know about stalked being the right word but certainly sure, uh, sure. O- o- oppressed if you will but that was actually what i wanted to mention and and then we probably should go ahead and move on into what we're talking about but the uh one of the actors in this film was in hush and plays the uh the very malicious nasty killer uh, and that's uh, John Gallagher Jr., who I have only ever seen him, to my knowledge, in this film and in the one we're talking about today. So, uh, so he's he's relatively new. Okay, yeah. See, I ha- I certainly haven't seen Hush, but um, uh, my only real awareness of him was he's in Newsroom, the Sorkin HBO oh, show. Oh, okay, um, which I haven't seen with Jeff Daniels and Emily Mortimer. Yeah, I think that's right. I hope I'm right there. Speaking of being right or not, before we get to Cloverfield, so you know, you you gave me shade. You threw some shade my way uh, <laughs> on Dean Koontz and Watchers <laughs> a couple weeks ago, and I'm going to sort of throw us both under the bus here because I was re-listening to we we covered Devil about you know, three weeks ago. Yeah, about three weeks, weeks ago, and we both made you you initiated it, um, and I took the baton and ran with it that the Christmasina character, the, the cop's character's child that he lost was a daughter when in fact it was a son. So bell rung for both of us. Yeah. Wah, wah. Mea culpa, oh, well. mea culpa. So let me hope Emily Mortimer's right um, and I don't get the bell rung on me next week. <laughs> um, well, yeah, let's, let's move into this week because we got a lot of ground to cover. So as we have alluded several times, um, we are today talking about 10 Cloverfield Lane. Um, we're going to give a few minutes to just kind of talk about what we, you know, enjoyed about it, didn't like about it, what have you. Um, and then we'll dive into some of the more, the deeper themes there. Something I want to unpack with you, Reed, and it's funny, you know, people listening to us, it may be lost on them that we've had uh, about 15 years worth of conversations like the ones we have on The Fear of God here. Yeah. Um, but I honestly don't know, I can't, or at least can't recall if we've had a conversation specifically about this topic. And that's um, the idea of, I'm going to call it the journey versus destination sort of 
topic, and that's where uh, we we alluded to the village by Shyamalan during Devils, the Devil episode, and same sort of through line applies there. That is is that I want to bring up for Ten Cloverfield Lane, and that's that the the journey of a story, you know, and how much or little the destination that story arrives at affects your appreciation for the previous journey you've been on. And I haven't done enough just sort of reading. I just know that with Cloverfield Lane around the time of its release, it was very, the, the ending of it was very divisive. So putting a pin there in terms of the divisiveness from the audience on their liking or not liking of that ending for me personally, and I'm going to use sort of a sweeping statement here about Cloverfield Lane, the movie, I loved it. Um, I think there's a whole lot of fun going on in it. Um, and we can, you know, unpack some of those specifics in a minute. And I remember being in the movie and I, I intentionally, and God love J.J. Abrams, you know, I actually don't love everything the man does, but I do just adore his sensibilities. I mean, he yeah. just, uh, you know, he, he is clearly a fan of movies. He's a fan of storytelling. He's a fan of a type of movie. He's a fan of you remaining a fan. And by that, I just mean, you know, the, the attempts he at least tries to make in terms of curbing what you know before you walk into the theater. And, and he doesn't always get it right, but I, I love the man for, for making a go at it in a way that just doesn't exist in Hollywood. So knew very little going into Cloverfield Lane, other than just the name reference to the previous Cloverfield movie, which I had seen. So I, I'm aware of sort of the tone that's that's probably going to unfold before me. And for all of our listeners, new or old, as you know, spoiler heavy, almost doesn't bear mentioning, but here it is. We're going to talk completely about this movie inside and out. You know, the ending of this film, you, you have this very fraught, sort of thriller trio, you know, three character sort of play. I mean, really, you know, um, this lovely little story of these three characters interactions with each other that culminates once you get past that in this massive sort of alien invasion set piece. That's really kind of the button on this, you know, kind of um, journey we've been on in terms of these characters interactions with each other. I I did rewatch the movie for our conversation, but in the theater, I really didn't mind it at all. Um, you know, I, I guess knowing the sensibilities of Abrams, who, who I know just produced it, you know, um, there were other folks involved in the directing and, and story and all that sort of stuff, but knowing the Cloverfield background, it didn't throw me really. Um, I do think it feels a bit of a different piece than what we have seen up till that point. Um, though I will say, as we build to some of the themes, I do think where the movie lands is very much consistent with the story being told. Anyway, so I'm curious to hear from you. Like for me, and I don't know that this would always be true, but I so thoroughly enjoyed, for pure entertainment pleasure, the journey before the moment where we get to this alien invasion, that whatever sort of ambivalence I might have felt about it, I just didn't care. I was like, man, uh, okay, whatever. Here we are. We're at this, and I'm just going to keep going with you. You know, what, what do you think about some of that? Well, um, I, I want to specifically resonate with a couple of things you said. I definitely, in the journey versus destination conversation, I absolutely think that if the journey itself has been satisfying and, and rich, that the destination will not be enough for me as a movie viewer to sully any of that. I might be a little disappointed with the ending. And to be honest, you know, we reference him so much. Most of the time with Stephen King, film or book, I find his endings to be often rather flat or a little anticlimactic. Sure. Um, but 
it's exactly what we're talking about here. The journey of getting there is so effective and so satisfying that I never mind. And I'm always on board to take another journey. I really wish we could have a conversation about Under the Dome and the Dark Tower and, and stories and endings, but I don't want to spoil all that for our listeners. Maybe one day we'll get to those, but yes, I... I hear you. Um, and, uh, and maybe those books even, you know, merit their own, their own individual episodes. That's, you know, something we could definitely explore. But in the, so in the journey versus destination idea, I definitely will be satisfied with a journey that has a somewhat unsatisfying destination far more than I will be a pitch perfect destination with a journey I didn't enjoy. Like just my sensibilities. Sure. I, if, sure. if I didn't enjoy getting there, your ending could be perfect. And, and I won't necessarily respond very strongly to it. When I went into Cloverfield Lane, I knew, as you did, I had seen the first film. I'm not that fond of the first movie. I mean, I think the first movie is okay. Yeah, it's, a, it's okay. Yeah. It's, it's more, it's more novelty than sort of rich. Yeah, I would agree with that. I felt, I felt almost the same way. And, uh, and, and while there were some things in it that I enjoyed, some things in it that I liked, it didn't really hold a ton of, an, of appeal to me. But then, uh, when I went into this movie, I was aware, okay, it's got the name Cloverfield. Cloverfield is a specific enough title. I knew it would probably involve aliens at some point. So, sure. when that ending comes and, you know, we get aliens, I was not thrown by it. I was not upset by it. Um, I do feel that it was, as you said, it, it was definitely a shift in tone from what we had experienced for the first, you know, hour and 20, hour and 30 minutes that preceded that ending. But I used to say that whether or not you enjoyed the alien aspect of the ending might have depended on whether or not you knew the Cloverfield reference. But I haven't found that to be true among my friends. I have had friends who knew nothing about Cloverfield and liked that ending. I had friends who knew nothing about Cloverfield and hated that ending. And I've had the reverse for people who, who, who also knew very well what Cloverfield was. There were some people who still just did not like that ending and some people who thought it was absolutely appropriate. I'm in the camp where the ending does not ruin anything of the movie for me. I think it is appropriate enough that, that I'm totally fine with, with it landing there. Do I think that there possibly could have been a better ending? Yeah, maybe. Maybe there would, maybe there is one out there. I just, it, the ending didn't bother me enough for me to want to change anything. And as you alluded to, and as I'm sure we'll discuss later, thematically, I think the ending works very, very well. Well, do you, do you think like, um, you know, something that's coming to me as you're talking and, and, and maybe this should be a more fully fleshed out thought before I speak it, but here goes, you know, stories that, or, or movies or, you know, TV shows or, or whatever that you stick with for a long span of time. I, I think for me, there is a distinction to be made when a story props up an expectation for an ending. Like, for instance, with Cloverfield Lane, and, and maybe I have blinders on and I just really liked the movie that much that, you know, uh, crit critics of it may disagree with me on this, I don't know. But the, the story being told is not what happened on the outside. Right. The story being told is, how is this woman going to get away from this dude? You know what I mean? Like, that's the story. And so, when it takes that shift, it doesn't bother me a whole lot. Whereas, in stories in the past, I'm going to pick on Battlestar Galactica right now. Uh, and, and those who know me and have had this conversation with are totally rolling their eyes right now if they're listening. Well, the, the tail end of Battlestar Galactica, the series, the Ron Moore-produced series, the Starbuck character... <laughs> 
spoiler alert, um, the Starbuck character dies at a certain point, you know, is it the last season? I can't quite recall, but then is back. Well, then the central mystery starts to develop of how she's back, how she's back, how she's back, and what the show ultimately lands on. In other words, they prop up this mystery. What happened? What happened? What happened? Well, where the show ultimately lands was so utterly disappointing to me that it's just sort of like, well, she's this angel thing. And then she, like, disappears. Mm. It was so disappointing. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is less picking on Battlestar, though clearly there's some of that there, but is more... When your story structure props up a mystery, then yeah, you've you've got a certain um, loyalty, a certain a certain duty to your audience to kind of honor that. Whereas in Cloverfield Lane, at least, I don't feel like they're say you know they allude to it, of course, because there's got to be a reason these people are all down here together and why we keep them down there. But the the central driving narrative of the story isn't to me what happened on the outside. What, does that resonate with you? It, it, it makes perfect sense. And there, uh, so there, there are three things that you just said, two of which I agree with. One I would kick back against just a slightly bit. The, what I agree with wholeheartedly. Well, share is, the first two and then. Exactly. Talking. Yes. So, you know, then you can just zone out for the last one. But the, uh, <laughs> the, so the, so the first thing that I agree with wholeheartedly is I agree with your assessment that when a story props up a mystery versus when a story tries to throw a mystery in to explain an undeveloped shock factor is a very different matter. Um, you can feel when there is a mystery at the core of what the story was trying to tell and when there isn't, when there's something more just sort of shoehorned in or something that's, that, that feels a bit forced. I'm resisting with every fiber of my being because it will derail us for an hour to bring up uh, our, our both much-beloved Lost TV yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And, um, and so I'm just going to table that. You and I Me both, too. both love lost. That's a, that's a conversation for another time, but I'll just say. Even that beautiful ending. Exactly. It's, Screw you haters. It's true. <laughs> it's true. I think the ending is perfect. But, um, the, uh, but I will say that, you know, like I do agree that when the show props up a mystery, um, and then, you know, delivers something unsatisfying or, or delivers something that is, um, you know, a, a bit more in line with, something that's out of the blue, that, that's a very different thing than if, like in your example of Battlestar Galactica with Starbuck, where it, it feels like they're trying to excuse a plot point that maybe they just sort of overextended themselves, painted themselves into a corner, and now sure. they've got yeah. to try to backpedal and justify. The second thing that I agreed with about what you said was that Cloverfield is not about what's happening outside. I think it's definitely about what's happening inside that bunker, most specifically, even deeper inside what's happening within the heart and mind of Michelle, the, the, the main girl. I think that what is, what, what she's going through in terms of how she navigates through her world is what the story is. And to that end, that's why the one little piece that I disagree with is I think that the ending is actually somewhat, somewhat integral to what they're experiencing in the bunker. Because as you said, not only do they have to have a reason to be in the bunker, but the only reason she is not continually trying to get out, at least in those, you know, in, initially she's trying very hard to get out. Then she has that experience where the, the woman, the unnamed woman, uh, tries mm -hmm. to, to break her way into the bunker. And that frightens her enough that she realizes something is going on. I need to stay right. here, you know? And, uh, and so then, it reaches a completely different point where she realizes, like, whatever it is that's going on out there, it has got to be better 
than what's going on in here. And whether or not she's right, I think, uh, let me say it this way. So, as I said, the film goes to a place to where it realizes, okay, whatever is going on out there has to be better than what's going on in here. You as the viewing audience, I think whether or not you like the ending depends on whether or not you agree that what's going on out there is better or worse than what was happening in the bunker. I may be wrong, <laughs> but maybe. I, Although those are two pretty, uh, two pretty strong happenings. <laughs> <laughs> they are. It's out of the frying pan into the fire. Um, well, yeah, and I, I think I think uh, your language of disagree might be stronger than than maybe it should be because I, I think we're probably pretty on point together there. So that was a big that was a big uh, rabbit trail in terms of journey versus destination, but I do think it's an interesting conversation. And you know, for the the listeners we may have out there, you know, feel free to let's let's talk about this on 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 Facebook and Twitter because I think it's I think it's an interesting conversation to have. Um, so let's unpack some specifics with. Uh, the movie itself, again, 10 Cloverfield Lane, directed by Dan Trachtenberg, uh, multiple writing credits on this. I, man, I just really dig this movie. Um, I love the simplicity of it. You know, so it's, it, it kind of has similarities to, to Devil that we talked about previously, just in terms of, you know, single location, small cast, um, watching the interactions and dynamics, character dynamics play out. I got to admit, when I saw it in the theater, even knowing this car crash was coming, I was still jump i still jumped out of my seat when it happened oh yeah i I don't know you know they they just built that moment so well um in such a way that again even knowing it was about to be upon us um Mm -hmm. you know that that i was still arrested by it and you know i think i think for me the major like and i you know you you gave props to uh, old miss winstead which which she earns but holy cow john goodman man he is on fire in this movie and i actually took a note saying how what's so fascinating to me about his portrayal in this movie or rather the character he portrays in this movie is you know we live in a kind of movie age right now of superheroes and supervillains and and big costumes and histrionics and and lots of scenery chewing and and you know you and i both have a, a shared affection for even just that that world and those movies and stuff but what a what an incredible portrayal here uh, acting performance by john goodman to take this character and man one scene to the next he is affable and you know i mean charming might be too strong a word but it's john goodman so there is some inherent charm to him but in the next scene he is menacing and sinister and it all works together you know and it's all performance you know i mean the, the, the script helps but versus like you know, character uh, costumes and makeup and things like that. This is all right. this actor's performance, and man, it just sings. He is amazing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I was going to say that I think that uh, John Goodman is an underrated actor, but then I immediately backpedaled on that thought because I can't think of anybody who doesn't love him. He's amazing, and yeah. and and yeah. I can't think of anybody who would say he isn't amazing. What I do think is, for my personal tastes, that he's an underused actor. I don't see him in nearly as many things as I would love to see him in. The Coen brothers use him a lot, but other than that, it was so wonderful to get to see him have a role like this because he's such an outstanding actor. And this is this is the kind of role that I think any actor would just love to be a part of because as you briefly referenced 
you know, earlier, it's, it's almost like a play. So much of this film is dependent upon these three performances and how they feed off of each other. And everybody, I think, is bringing their A-game, but it is anchored so well by John Goodman. And he he just chews on this role like a big, juicy steak. Oh, my gosh. it's it's He's amazing. Like, I love little bits like, um, oh, it's right after they, I think she has gone through to fix the air ventilation something or other, you know, technical jargon. Right. And comes back and he, he goes to the jukebox and he says something like, problem solving puts me in a musical mood and starts... <laughs> shaking his tail to some music and dance. Oh man. I mean, just it's, it's equal parts comical and equal parts. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I think probably, probably, you know, uh, segueing slightly though, we can certainly still touch on some of favorites or, or, or dislikes or whatever. To me, one of the scariest moments in the movie, in a movie with, uh, a scene where uh, a, a gun death happens very suddenly and, unexpectedly uh, a movie where an old lady bashes her head into a wall or into a window until she's dead. To me, one of the scariest moments in the movie, but one of the most expertly crafted moments is after um, Emmett's death, when um, John Goodman brings her the ice cream and he's off camera. Like his, all you're seeing is kind of his torso. Yeah. And the first time you see, he's been, He's been um, not disheveled, but he's been bearded, you know, scruffy the whole movie. And, you know, they've been sort of toying with this. Is there some sort of romantic something that he's angling on for her or not? Well, Emmett leaves the picture, literally, and he brings her this ice cream. You don't see him and the camera pans up to his face and he is clean shaven and his hair is slicked back. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that is perfect. I mean, it's so wicked but such an expertly crafted moment and that's a great example too of showing and not telling we don't need to get into unpacking all of that but that is a perfect example you know everything you need to know about what's potentially going on in the mind of that character simply with that single visual cue and it's it's brilliant and he he himself the way he's carrying himself you know what i thought you were almost going to mention because it's another scene that was just you know, like you said, some of the more overt moments make you jump or startle you, but the moments that are so, this film has such well calculated, sustained tension. And one of the, mm. one of the most nerve wracking scenes to me is the game they're playing where he keeps, oh. where he keeps trying to get, uh, he keeps trying to get Emmett to, to, to guess yeah, and to guess Santa Claus. Oh my goodness. Oh, he's watching you. He knows everything. And I'm like, Oh my God. I, no, he says, I know. I know what you're oh, doing. Right, right, right. I see you when you're sleeping. Oh. Well, and what's so, what's so amazing about that scene is how it ends. You know, talk about journey versus destination. It's such a well crafted scripting moment that ends with the two of them once, once she blurts out Santa Claus. And he, you know, they realized that was the answer he was going for and he wasn't, you know, calling them right. out yet. Um, they're kind of deflating from their anxiety and he's real put out. He's like, it wasn't even your turn. <laughs> I, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep that point. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's, it's wonderful. He's so into and that's, it. And that's yeah. exactly the kind of thing that this movie does so well. I don't know if it's in the script or if it's in Dan Trachtenberg's direction. This is his first feature film. And just it, it is such a phenomenal entry point. But whether it was in the script or in his direction or the performances or both and a combination of all three, 
Um, th there's so much about this film that I think works so well. And I think while we've already mentioned that the film itself, the ending is uh, kind of divisive, I haven't yet found a single person who didn't love that time spent in the bunker because sure. it's just such a well-executed suspense piece. And I think there's so much to love about it. Yeah, and I think that's a, a, a good note to segue on into just talking about some of the some of the deeper themes of this. And it's it's fun and sort of interesting when you start to um, you know I've always sort of got that cerebral you know what's really going on in this movie mind on, but for some movies like this that are a bit intended to be a bit more kind of popcorny entertainment, um, it's fun to suddenly start to pay attention and think, oh, they're there's a lot more going on here than I may have first noticed. And, and so on my rewatch in preparation for our conversation today, you know, there were some things I noticed that, and you know, is this me projecting? Um, I don't know. I do know it spoke to me in a way that it did not the first go around based honestly, largely on just the, the climate in which we find our world. Um, we're recording in, in early July you know, lots of just really, really heavy, sad things happening in the world. Um, and, you know, there's two, there's two script moments that I, I wrote down uh, quotes of Goodman's character that I want to expound upon a little bit. The first one, um, and these could probably, you know, should be separated out, but I'll, I'll just go ahead and shoot them out. Um, the first one, uh, he says to the two other characters, Emmett and Michelle, he says, as of Friday, kindness and generosity are antiquated customs. And I think that's a really fascinating sort of line for where some of my thoughts were taking me. The second one, um, second quote is, he says, people are strange. You can't always convince them safety is in their best interest. Mm. Um, so you've got this character who has maneuvered so much of life, his own, and now these two other folks, into what he would define as safety. Um, and I, I just want to talk about that for a few minutes with you, Reed, and just sort of you know, hear your thoughts on some of this. And the phrase I wrote down as my brain was kind of processing this as I was rewatching this movie was the idolatry of safety. Mm. And I think we are just in an interesting time in our culture, both just in the broader culture at large, um, be it political, social, what have you, but but also in the in the church culture, mm. in the evangelical culture, and where this this trumpet of safety has never been louder. Um, yeah. You know, and it, you know, I think of things, you know, even five or six years ago, I mean, this has been going on for some time, but I remember really noticing it five or six years ago, maybe longer, but you know, whether it's Christian TV networks or, or Christian radio stations that advertise safety, you know, safe for the whole family. Mm. Um, so you've got that component. Um, fast forward to the culture we find ourselves today where, <laughs> you know, this is a very, this is a very fraught sort of topic, but uh, the the gun issue in our country right now, and just safety and the the rabidity, the rabidness with which people are are demanding their safety. You know, mm. um, I have a friend here in in town where uh, we had a conversation recently about the political climate, and he's a Christian. And, and one of the things he said to me that honestly was a little troubling was he was talking about the government, and one of the things he expects is keep me safe. And I just, I can't get away from this feeling. And this is what I want to spend some time, you know, kind of hearing your thoughts on too. Like, sure. I don't personally, I don't feel the faithful Christian life, the pursuit of 
a faithfulness to Jesus and living his ways, I don't feel like safety is part of the package. Mm. Um, I, you know, and, and I kept resonating on, you know, a pretty famous sort of scene from literature, which is C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And, and, and confession time, I actually don't love the Narnia stuff. Um, I recognize its place kind of in the canon and, and, what it does and what it says. Part of that, I think I came to it pretty late in life. Oh, yeah. um, so I, you know, I just didn't quite have the sort of uh, fascination with it that, that a lot of my peers did. That said, I, I, you know, I'm a great respecter of Lewis, of course. And, and this particular quote spoke volumes to me in, in, the, in the spirit of this conversation. And that's, you know, when one of the children is talking to uh, Susan, Susan um, is talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver towards late in the book and or film, if, you, if, if that's how you absorbed it. Um, and, he's, and, and Susan's referring to Aslan and says, is he safe? I, I, would, I would feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And, and you know, anyone who spent any time with C.S. Lewis and Narnia knows Aslan is the sort of proxy Christ figure in this story. And Mr. Beaver's response to Susan's imploring about his safety says, who said anything about safe. He isn't safe, but he is good. And I think that just speaks volumes. And, you know, tying it back into um, the movie itself, I think her journey is all about, she runs from the ex-boyfriend or who becomes the ex-boyfriend or ex-fiance or whatever. She tells the story of not uh, stepping into the situation to avert the father spanking the child in the store, the little girl in the store runs from that. Yeah. So there's this safety, safety, safety. I've got self-preservation, self-preservation over and over and over. You know, John Goodman, I mean, like the definition of what he does in this movie is all about safety and self-preservation yeah. at, at all expense. And there's something powerful about the end of the movie where when given the opportunity to run, she does not anymore. And I think that was, that's what I mean by it was really fascinating to see this new through line in a way that I hadn't seen it the first time around that really spoke volumes to me. And I think is quite intentional that at the end of the movie and even Emmett's story, you know, runs, runs track, has this r- fantastic opportunity. And because of his fear does not pursue it. And because of her fear up until this point in her life does not uh, open herself up to the opportunities that we would say the Lord would have sort of placed in her path or life had placed in her path. And finally, when faced with running again or facing running headlong into quote unquote danger, abandoning safety, she does exactly that. And, and really uh, I'm talking a lot and and really want you to give some feedback here, but I really feel like this movie is like an an indictment of fearful living. I don't know. That's what I came away from it. And I know that's a lot, but interested in some feedback. There. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and yeah, my, my reason for not interjecting was just wanting to give you the <clears throat> space you needed to unpack all of that. Cause I, I really, I appreciate that. That's why we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> I really resonate a great deal with, uh, with much, if not all of what you, with what you just said. I do think, uh, speaking just sort of with the first few thoughts that come to my mind, what you, what you took away from the ending is part of why I love the ending and why I'm so on board for it because sure. it's a very definite move that is contrasting her move at the very beginning of the movie. We see her running away. Right. But at the very end of the movie, we see her running towards and we see her mm-hmm. moving into the fray to do battle. And uh, we don't know exactly what happens next. We don't need to. Sure. All we need to know is that this character who at one point 
was retreating is now advancing and and moving forward. And that's why, even though some people find the alien inclusion a bit silly, I'm completely on board with it because of what they do with her character in the midst of all of those things. Sure. And to get to what you talked about um, so eloquently and richly about this idea of the, the, the idolatry of safety, there is definitely, and I'm not hedging here, I do sincerely feel this way, the, the matters of security, the matters of safety. There are people who love God and love other people who have very passionate feelings on both sides of the fence regarding uh, the issues that, that trouble our country right now about how do we feel safe, what is the best method to go about doing that. Um, what's the best means with which to, to approach that conversation. But I think in light of the events of, of this film, this fictional narrative, and I do feel that, that fiction is sometimes a great way, if not the best way, to sort of package and observe and deconstruct how we feel about these real-life issues. There is a distinct difference between the choice that Howard, John Goodman's character, is making about how to handle this situation that has hit the world and how Michelle ultimately decides to handle how this situation has hit the world. And I think that the film does, as you said, indict the kind of idea that Howard would put forth that the most appropriate thing is to seclude ourselves and to hide ourselves, to arm ourselves, and, and then to just let the world decay and let it let it burn. I think that there's definitely people out there. I know there, there are people that uh, that I love dearly um, that would echo that they're, that they're very afraid about a number of things that are happening. I, I know uh, there are certainly and I really want to resist and you probably listeners can probably hear in my voice that I'm trying to resist making overt or distinct political statements. So if we step onto no, this... No, please, please. It's, it's, it's just you and me here. <laughs> Go right ahead. If we... Uh, right I will ahead. say, you know, for myself, and I think you would echo the same thing, that, you know, if I say something that should be more nuanced or that I've forgotten something, it's not intentional. We're just trying to navigate through this as, as sanely as possible. Um, but I know that there are a great many people out there who fear for their lives. They just fear for their lives. And that is... That is sometimes regardless and sometimes exactly because of race and orientation um, or occupation. Speaking of police officers, there are people out there who, who live uh, in perpetual danger. They live in under, under kind of a constant threat of something happening, something bad sure. and ultimate happening to them. And I think that the real character of a person is how they navigate through that. I think uh, that mm. that how you respond to such fears as and we're not the first people to say this, but courage doesn't lie in whether or not you are afraid. It lies in how you overcome or not the fears that you feel. Um, sure, a a sure. film that I don't want to spend too much time talking about because a lot of it's also divisive, and I don't want to get too much into this, but I very strongly responded in a positive way to a film called The Gray. Um, a lot of people didn't, but I, um, but I found a lot to love in that film. <laughs> Yours truly. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things for me, and the reason I'm bringing it up now, is because there was a moment that I really liked where Liam Neeson's character in that film 
kind of calls out the fear of another person and says, you're pretending you're not afraid. Sure. And, and then when that other person says, you know, he's trying to deny it. And then, uh, Liam Neeson says, I'm terrified and no shame whatsoever in saying it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm scared to death and I have no shame in saying it. Right. Uh, I strongly responded to that scene and to many others in that film. And I think that when you get to a situation like Cloverfield Lane, you see a man like Howard who is clearly mentally unstable. He's got, Many things about him that indicate, you know, he, he's, he's lost in many ways, but he just so happens to be correct about the fact that it's all hitting the fan outside of the bunker. Right. He just right. happens to be correct. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because I think some people feel, and I don't want to be too cavalier with this. Again, I'm trying to, to remain as sensitive as possible in very volatile emotional subjects, but I think that when people say, I'm right about this threat, I'm right about this danger, they assume that their solution to it is also correct. Right. Because they are justified in identifying the danger, they have now justified their proposed solution to the danger. And they're two different things. They're two completely different things. Recognizing the inherent danger present in a situation does not mean, on either side of the fence, that you are automatically correct about how best to respond to that danger. And I think that as a person of faith, as a Christian, I would wholeheartedly agree with you as much as, frankly, it terrifies me to admit this. It honestly scares me to admit that safety is not guaranteed. It's not guaranteed sure. in the life of a believer. That we are sometimes called to go into dark places, to step into dangerous situations. We're called to step forth Jesus said to his disciple, and I don't have the verse uh, written here, but he said to his disciples, I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. I am sending you out as sheep that are going amongst predators. And he himself was not guaranteed safety. Mm. He himself was not assured that he would be able to escape the cross. And that's a, that's a larger theological subject, but we just know, point of fact, he asked. I'm not going to unpack the theology of whether or not, you know, choice and free will and all of this stuff. That's for an, another conversation for another time. Sure. The text says he asked, is there any other way? Right. Right. And the answer was no, there's not any other way. Right. And, um, well, and I think, I th I'm, I'm sorry. To no, you're there. I think that what's sort of, you know, I, I think I want to nuance what I've even said too. Like, I don't think you should just walk through life. Uh, embracing every risky scenario and situation right, possible. Right. I, I think that's just reckless and stupid. Um, and there is a, don't yeah, lose your thought, you but think, there is a, yeah. there is a distinct difference yeah. between recklessness and, and courage and bravery. I definitely think you're sure. right on there. Sure. Well, and I just, I don't know. I, you know, I sometimes worry I go through life overly hopeful. Um, but I, but I think that hope is rooted in sound places. You know, I think so much about, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Like this is this I am. And, and, you know, you and I aren't talking about all the nuances of our own personal theology, but I am a person who thinks the kingdom is here and, and you are a you are either uh, a co-laborer and it's revealing or you're just kind of in the way. That's real. That's a real callous how I just said that, huh? Yes. Um, you know, and, and I. I think that there is this degree to which I got, 
you know, Facebook sort of interactions are, are rarely fruitful. Yeah. But I actually stumbled on a fruitful one uh, about six months ago, actually, and it was in response to, you know, my, my wife would say I kicked a hornet's nest when it comes to the gun issue and stuff. But remarkably got into sort of an interesting conversation with someone on the other side of the on the other side of the discussion from me. And he kept talking about uh, the reality we live in, the reality we live in. And I'm going to, and this is, you know, probably a, a upstanding citizen, a uh, member of a sort of drumbeat that does kind of exhaust me sometimes of, you know, if such and such ends up happening, these, these crazy scenarios, well, I'm going to be ready, you know, and it's this re- the reality, reality. He kept using that phrase over and over. And excuse me, finally, it sort of clicked with me. I was like, okay, this, that's the, that's the bedrock we're talking about here is reality. And what so many people I think operate in is, well, reality equals what I see on the news and what's outside my door, which I don't know that I would argue against. What I would say though is to me, mm. and this is me, the teachings of Jesus, the, the example of Jesus are to say, whatever the reality you think you're living in right now, there's a different one happening right beyond it. And your job is to usher it forth. So mm. it really doesn't matter the reality that you observe with your eyes hmm. because there's a, there's a higher and a greater and a more beautiful one that you <laughs> are charged with, with bringing into light. Um, and so I think that's what's so fascinating to me about this sort of safety conversation in our culture that, that was spurred on by this movie Cloverfield Lane, like, you know, the, the, you know, the Christian world that is so scared. I mean, we talked about it weeks ago in the pilot, you know, in our first episode, the, the, the fear that is so present and honestly is not dispelled a whole lot by the church. And that to me is scary. It doesn't cause fear in me, but it is sort of a scary thing. Right. You know, that, that even where a place most called to look at the fear and say, I see you, but you don't win. And, and I've got something even greater that I can sort of bring forth into the world is, is sort of cowering against some of that. And again, that's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an enormously nuanced conversation and, and not everything I think is going to is, is going to solve all the answers to the sure, conversation, but sure. clear, clearly, uh, Cloverfield Lane was a much <laughs> there was a lot more going on to it uh, <laughs> than I thought the first time. <laughs> yeah, well, and I'd like to I'd like to respond, and uh, you know, I, I I don't know how much more how much longer we'll we'll talk or if we're going to wind down, but I would like to to respond to something that you're saying with um, a passage of scripture that, that this film made me remember, made me think about. And uh, I, I want to read uh, just, just a couple of little chunks of these verses and then tell you kind of what it makes me think. Um, I'm reading from a passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'm starting with verse 3 here, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3, it says, While people are saying peace and safety... Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to pause right there. This is, of course, not quoting, but like this, this is Howard's mentality. People are saying peace and safety and then sudden destruction comes like this is this is his ideas about how the world works. It's like, oh, you know, we 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 got to say this, this, this. We got to protect ourselves because because destruction is is imminent. It's here. 
Um, you know, the, the, the scripture uses the example of a woman who is expecting a child. And then, you know, I know that this probably with, with medical advancements today, the metaphor might lose some of its steam a little bit, but, but basically like when the labor pains come, when the water breaks, it like, it's time. It's suddenly, this is happening. <laughs> you know, like this, this, this child is coming. This is, this is on its way. But a few verses further down, it says this, it says, uh, I'm skipping to verse five. It says, you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awakened, sober. And it says, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. And then verse 8 is the one I really want to hone in on, because this is what it makes me think. It says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Now, what it makes me think about when I think about this is I hear those words saying, you know, we could look around at what's happening to us. And I feel afraid. My friends feel afraid. My family members feel afraid. We look out and we see this and we get anxious and we get terrified. Sure. But if there, it, it is possible that we might take a step back and recognize this is not where we belong. And I'm not making some big broader statement here, some big broader theological statement here. Just simply like, this is not what we are of. We are not of this climate of, of the, the, the nastiness. We are not of this climate of, of the vitriol and the hate and the spit and all of this. But we can put on faith and love as a breastplate to guard our hearts and the hope of salvation as a helmet to guard our thinking. And that metaphor just works very visually very well for me as if like if I'm standing there saying like, okay, I'm going to put on, I'm going to put on faith and love to guard my heart and the hope of salvation to guard my mind. Sure. And sure. then look around at the world. I mean, so many things happening that if you, if you follow the media and if you follow the news and if you take huge bites of what they're feeding you, you will walk away with nothing but terror. You will walk away with nothing but anxiety. And I can think of few ways to respond to terror and anxiety other than to try to steal yourself up and defend yourself and protect yourself. Sure. But there's a greater protection that is immediately available to us, and that is to simply recognize we don't belong to this. This is not something that there is a better way, I guess, is, is what I'm trying to say, that there is something that is more powerful than this that we could reach towards. And so that's something that, I, I know it's not necessarily, you know, Michelle's character doesn't specifically go through kind of like a, a, a faith conversion experience. You know, like she doesn't, you know, she, she doesn't bow down and pray or anything like that. But as we mentioned earlier, but she does make a Molotov cocktail and throw it in an alien's mouth and boom. Darn right. You know, darn she does, right. She does. She does, she does do that. <laughs> but I think that, you know, again, speaking very, I'm, I'm being very sincere here that she's, she makes a shift where she recognizes, like, I'm not resigned to this. Sure. Not only am I not resigned to the world of this bunker, I'm not resigned to the world that made this bunker necessary, which is the, 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 the thing that's out there. She, you know, <laughs> I love the moment. I, I, I actually have forgotten now her exact quote, but I love the moment when she makes it out of the bunker and she looks out and sees the alien spaceship. And I, I can't remember exactly what she says, but she says, I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> like, like, yeah, you know, it's yeah, like, it's, something like, it's that. like, this is ridiculous, you know, but you know, then, then she doesn't lose that, that fire. 
to, to continue defending herself, to continue, continue protecting herself. Um, and basically she, you know, like, like the old, uh, disco song, she will survive. Oh, forgive me. That wow. was terrible. Wow. That's, that was terrible. That was rough. I mean, I repent. Well, and to, to sort of, um, to sort of maybe, maybe drive us home here, um, and push briskly past your random disco, uh, reference. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think what you're honing in on, and I mentioned earlier those two quotes and how they could have been un, kind of unpacked uh, separately. I think that this is a perfect moment for that. You know, his comment, and you could go like Max Licato on the Friday reference here, but I won't. I'll refer. Oh, like, I see what you're suss doing. that out itself. But he says, as of Friday, kindness and generosity are antiquated customs, and I'm going to make a point that the movie, you know, may not be trying to make here. But what happens to Howard? Yeah, dude gets his face eaten off by acid and blown up in a bunker. Yep. And what happens to Michelle? You know, in this thread of kindness and generosity, she moves towards generosity. She says, "There are people who can be helped, and I'm going to go help them." Yeah. You know, and and I think in this conversation of what is reality versus what are we called to do with our reality, it's to say. There should never be a day, and if you want to get real theological, I think, will never be a day where kindness and generosity are antiquated customs. Amen. Um, because as long as, you know, let's, let's, let's get old school, the remnant is around and the witnesses are there, the kindness and the generosity will be present, um, and, and, and that is what will shape um, our reality around us. Anyway, that's my thought at least. I couldn't have said it any better, and I think you're right. I think that's a that's probably a great note to to conclude this conversation on. We've talked uh, clearly about some very heavy things. I think both of us probably got a little bit more. I know I can speak for myself. Um, got a little bit more emotional than I was expecting to in this uh, in this kind of conversation. But I do want to hear what uh, what you, our listeners, think about some of these subjects. I will say um, before we do our usual little closeout thing that. If, if, if we have approached any of these subjects a bit too cavalierly for your tastes, then please know that, you know, we have, we, we, we're just kind of exploring this. We're not trying to explain anything. We're just, we're just trying to explore it as people who experience the same kinds of emotions and, and thoughts, uh, that, that anybody else does. And, uh, we would love to hear your thoughts and love to keep the conversation going. Cause as we say every episode, the fear of God may be the beginning of wisdom, but it is not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation with us in a number of ways. You can, first of all, visit uh, morethanonelesson.com, which is the website that hosts and houses these episodes. You can comment on the posts there. Also, I don't think we've mentioned this yet, but feel free to leave us a review in iTunes. That helps boost the visibility of the show. And uh, if you like the show, if you like the kind of conversations we're having here, then please uh, go rate us and review us on iTunes. If you don't like us, then you know tell all your friends about it, but don't necessarily post on iTunes. I'm kidding. I'm totally teasing there. But sincerely, uh, you know, reach out to us at morethanonelesson.com or leave us a review on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter. Nathan, what's our Twitter? And that's, I, I think, probably an easier way to quickly and easily interact Yeah, is on Twitter. It's at the fear of God, T-H-E, fear of God. There's also a link to our Facebook page on that on that Twitter site. So yeah, we would absolutely love to hear from you. You can email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Reed Lackey. Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter besides the fear of God? Uh, my personal Twitter is at the Nathan Rouse. Nathan, I really appreciate your thoughts on this uh, episode. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, man, I think we got it all figured out. 
We do. Like we do. Maybe if some higher level <laughs> politicians hear this episode, they'll they'll change some change some thinking. Mm. I'll uh, mm. I'll go ahead and hold my breath. Um, <laughs> right. But uh, but seriously, now next week. Uh, what are we? Yeah, I was going to say, what are we doing next? Yeah. Time? So next week we're going to be diving. This was kind of not quite in the traditional horror vein. Next week we are firmly landing right back in the heart of it with uh, one of the what I think is one of the scariest and possibly one of the best horror films of the last decade. We're going to be talking about Scott Derrickson's film from 2012, Sinister. So if you have not seen that movie. Please bra- uh, grab your best comfort blankie and, <laughs> and uh, watch it. That's it. It'll do it. <laughs> and then join us next week. Thanks so much again, Nathan, for having this conversation with me. Yeah, it was good, Reed. Talk to you later. All right. Talk to you later. Thank you. Bye. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for links to our social media and episode archive, essays, merchandise, and more. If you love what we do, consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com slash thefearofgodpodcast where you will unlock exclusive bonus episodes, extended standard episodes, online events, and so much more. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of TracerMatula.com for our artwork. Our assortment of talented musicians, Andrew Nelson, the Island Family, and Jackson Harper for our varied show tunes. And to Lee Wright and Reed Lackey for our theme music. Special thank you also to Tyler Smith at MoreThanOneLesson.com. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you listen to us through Apple Podcasts, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.